Well, I think we will go ahead and get started this morning, talk a little bit about malaria on this nice frosty morning in Kentucky. Fortunately, that keeps the mosquitoes away for us a little bit, but as many of you know, for, for much of the world, that is not the case. Um, my name is Charlie Mossler. I teach pharmacy at uh, the University of Finley, which is in northwest Ohio. Uh, interestingly, my primary focus is, is geriatrics, and so you're probably like, well, how's a guy from northwestern Ohio who teaches geriatrics, still works in nursing homes occasionally, here talking about malaria. And that all started actually in, in pharmacy school. Uh, my, my third year of pharmacy school, I had the opportunity to go to Belize. Uh, spent a week in Belize. That was my first real experience outside the U.S., not counting you know, Canada and border towns of Mexico. And, and I absolutely fell in love with that opportunity and, and continue to do that. Um, in college, I, I went on two additional trips, one to Haiti and one I spent a whole month then in Honduras. Uh, in pharmacy school, our last year, we do one-month rotations in different areas of medicine. And one of the opportunities I had was to spend a month in Honduras, uh, actually Hospital Loma de Luz, which I saw has a, an exhibit here in the, the, in the exhibit area. So, um, And that's really started. My wife and I, who is also a pharmacist, we've continued to do mission trips throughout the world. Um, I can't even think of where all we've been, but we're, we're trying to do one to two a year. We now have two little boys, so that's kind of cut down on our, our time abroad. Uh, they're three and a half and one and a half years old. Um, um, so, but anyhow, so today we're going to talk a little bit about malaria, something, again, that a lot of people in the United States don't necessarily think a whole lot about. It's not something that bothers us on a daily basis. Now, go back 100 years, 150 years, 200 years, and you look at the maps. There's very interesting maps online that show you know, where yellow fever was at, where typhoid fever was at, where malaria was at in the United States. And it's, it's very eye-opening um, to show to students. We actually teach a tropical medicine class at the University of Finley. And it, it was very eye-opening for a lot of the students to see that the diseases we think about being overseas actually used to be very prevalent, and even in this area of the United States. Um, so, enough about me. Malaria treatments, I have to, for pharmacy CE purposes, and there are some pharmacists in here, uh, discuss that I have no financial relationships to disclose. And then I also put in this caveat that I have to talk about FDA off-label treatment, which many of these drugs we're going to talk about, the FDA doesn't even recognize. So they're all would be considered, many of them would be considered off-label treatment. Um, objectives are listed here, uh, basically to go through malaria treatments what the current practices are, what the current guidelines suggest uh, that happens. Uh, talk a little bit about the end, about malaria vaccine, which is a very exciting and at the same time a somewhat disappointing um, effort for many, many decades now. So we'll talk about that at the end. Uh, malaria itself, as many of you know who have spent time overseas, it varies greatly from one region to another region. If you spent time in South America and Africa and Southeast Asia, you saw malaria in all those places, but the way it exhibited, the way it appeared, how many people were actually affected by it varied quite, quite greatly, even though you know, there were many similar things in those areas. Mainly these are due to the, actual, the different types of mosquitoes that are around in those areas. Some mosquitoes prefer to bite at night. Uh, in those areas, you don't usually see quite as much malaria just because there's not as much out there. Other areas, mosquitoes that carry malaria tend to bite more in the morning when everyone's getting up and going. And in those areas, you tend to see a little bit more. Breeding habits, the actual parasite species. Does anyone know the, the parasite, uh, the protozoa, which actual one is the, causes the worst disease, worst malaria disease? 
Hosparum um, easily does. There's, there's four others that affect uh, humans. There's estimated to be th- over 300 actual um, malaria-carrying protozoa, or protozoa um, in that species. Genetic and acquired resistance of, of the individual person uh, is quite a huge factor. When you look at cases of malaria that are brought into the United States, a lot of them have to do with people who grew up in a malaria-prone area. They didn't take prophylactic medicine like all of us do if we're going a short-term medicine or a short-term mission work. So they grew up in these areas. They probably got malaria as a kid, and, and then they continued to probably get reinfected throughout their life, but they build up in, in a kind of an acquired immunity to it. So then they moved to the United States, so they moved to Canada, or they moved to a non-malaria part of the world, and they live there for maybe a couple years, maybe several years, whatever the case may be, and then they go back home, and they don't even think about, oh, you know, malaria, I never took anything for that before, and then they go back home and they get malaria. In that time they spent in the United States or the non-malaria part of the world, they've lost their immunity. So pretty much all of the cases of malaria that are brought back into the United States are from these people um, who have lost that resistance um, lost that immunity to malaria. And then compliance with treatment. Um, there are always several cases each year in the United States of individuals who went on overseas medical mission trips and they didn't take their medicine the way they were supposed to or it caused side effects they didn't like, so they stopped taking it. They're oh, I don't see any mosquitoes. I don't need to worry about it. Or more commonly, they don't take it for the usual four weeks or so after they get home. And then that allows that protozoa in the different stages within the body to continue to grow and develop. Epidemiology. These are World Health Organization statistics from their 2010 update, which was published in 2011, most recently have. In 2010, they estimated there were 216 million cases of malaria. Now, there's some quite a bit of disagreement amongst these statistics. There's many organizations that say, that's probably not right. It's probably closer to 500 million. Um, so these numbers are going to vary quite dramatically um, depending on where you're looking at. And an estimated 655,000 deaths. Uh, there's other sources that suggest that's more in the 1 to 1.2 million people or so. Um, so overall... You know, statistics, malaria is very difficult to track in most of the world, as are many of these diseases that we would be discussing when we're looking at these individuals. Um, So statistics are going to vary uh, quite drastically. Malaria transmission itself is very much dependent on the mosquito lifespan, uh, which really relates to the ambient temperature as well. As the ambient temperature goes up to a certain point, um, the mosquito lifespan is going to be shorter, which means there's going to be more and more generations of, of malaria-carrying mosquitoes to infect you. Um, the population density of both people and also malaria are also mosquitoes. Uh, mosquitoes' biting habits, we talked about the immune response that the individual has. We already discussed a little bit. And then most importantly, drug activity. A lot of the malaria medications, uh, especially the old quinine-like medications, chloroquine, uh, really chloroquine has really lost effectiveness in the vast, vast majority of the world. Pretty much the only place you can still take it and expect to get good prophylactic uh, experience from it is in Central America and the Caribbean islands. Other than that, you know, chloroquine really has lost its, its um, response. Same thing with methylquine. We're seeing a, an increasing resistance kind of starting in Southeast Asia, um, but there's also other pockets in the world where we're starting to see more mefloquine uh, resistance as well. So if you 
have somebody with malaria or you're taking prophylactic treatment, but you're taking the wrong one based on resistance patterns of the protozoa species in that area, it's not going to do you much good. Uh, malaria transmission itself, this is, is very important when we talk about treating malaria to understand which sort of area you live in. Uh, <clears throat> stable malaria is in a geographic area where you are likely to walk outside and get bitten by a mosquito carrying or a malaria carrying mosquito at any point in time during the year. 365 days a year, there's mos malaria carrying mosquitoes. Um, and that leads to usually less of a problem um, in individuals where you, healthy adults typically don't get real sick from malaria. They'll get little you know, a bit of a fever for a couple days and it goes away. That's where we see this, this immune response start to develop that leads to immunity in some individuals. Unstable malaria, though, is in, is in areas, and this is kind of what the United States used to be back in the 1800s and 1700s when malaria was rampant. Um, certain times of the year, right now, for example, you weren't likely to get malaria because the mosquitoes are not around due to the cold nature. Then the hot summer months... Mosquitoes come back, as we all know, and, and malaria would come back as well. That time period, six months or so, of no malaria-carrying mosquitoes around biting people was enough time to allow the immune response to degrade, and so we'd start to see uh, a lack of immunity in those individuals. And these people would get sicker, essentially. They would suffer from a more severe form of the disease. Now in the stable malaria of the world, the tropical areas of the world, um, we really worry about the pregnant women and the young children predominantly. Um, it can affect adults still, healthy adults, um, but those are the ones who generally are going to get uh, the sickest. Innate immunity, of course, uh, many of you know, working in some of these areas of the world, that sickle cell areas of the world, where patients are likely to have this, it's protective. The same with G6PD, thalassemia, um, which is a, a disorder that affects the hemoglobin. Um, ovalocytosis, which is kind of more in the Southeast Asia part of the world, um, causes the red blood cells to be sickle cell shaped. Um, they're kind of, they're not a sickle cell shaped, elliptical shaped, um, which makes it, all these essentially make it more difficult for the red blood cells to become infected by the malaria parasite. Um, so we definitely see these. Uh, similar things have been seen with other tropical diseases, um, with, with other, like cystic fibrosis is protectant against cholera, which is kind of interesting. Um, so these very similar sorts of things where we see these, these diseases, normally we would not want one of these diseases, but they do seem to be genetically protective against getting malaria. Acquired malaria, this is what we kind of already jumped ahead about a little bit, um, Believed to require repeated exposure uh, to the malaria parasite. Um, again, depending on what you're looking at, without reinfection, immunity definitely wanes after five years. There's a lot of evidence now that it doesn't even take that long. Like I mentioned, six months or so seems to be about enough for many individuals to lose that protection that they build up over years and years. Um, of course, pregnancy, severe illness, and surgery, anything that is trashing your immune system to begin with is going to increase your chance, even if you have, quote-unquote, acquired immunity, uh, it's going to increase your chance of developing malaria. Uh, pregnancy. Infection may be asymptomatic or severe. Do you think you're more likely to see the asymptomatic uh, in a stable area, a stable malaria transmission of the world, or an unstable where are you more likely to get, even pregnant women, a less severe form of the disease? 
In the stable, again, even this, this continued exposure to it um, leads to a decreased chance of getting it. Um, the severe, more likely in the more temperate areas of the world that are affected by malaria. Um, you can still, again, though, you can still see severe in the, in, in the other areas of the world, especially in the malnourished, um, those individuals who do not have access to adequate food or are immunocompromised for any particular reason. The big things that you really have to watch for in, in pregnant women uh, would be anemia, hypoglycemia, uh, pulmonary edema, fetal distress, premature label stillbirths would be the ultimate unfortunate consequence um, in, in many individuals. Malarial management. So how do we treat these individuals? What can we do? And essentially, the World Health Organization recommends that all patients who have symptoms of malaria, no matter if it's just a little fever for a couple days or if it's, you know, extreme fever resulting in potentially seizures, um, hypoglycemic crises, uh, whatever the case may be, they recommend that all patients who have symptoms, signs, symptoms, or, or confirm malaria to get tr treatment. Many patients also need antipyretics and analgesics, um, things like acetaminophen, ibuprofen. It doesn't matter if you give it orally, if you give them rectally, uh, or if you live in areas of the world where you can get um, acetaminophen or ibuprofen in injectable forms. Uh, the big thing is to get those into those individuals so that we can bring down their fever in, in, a, in a rapid manner. Why do we avoid aspirin in children? Potential for Rye syndrome is definitely there um, and is the, the one everyone knows. But one of the other side effects that we see of, or symptoms we see of malaria is metabolic acidosis. Aspirin in a child um, or really aspirin in anyone uh, can increase that risk of, of acidosis because it's an acidic drug anyways. So avoid aspirin in children and some people recommend avoiding aspirin in all patients unless it's the only thing you have available. Airway, breathing, circulation. Um, always should be assessed. Treat hypoglycemia. Again, many of these people get hypoglycemia. Um, some of the drugs we use to treat malaria, we'll talk about shortly, cause hypoglycemia because they cause the pancreas to release more insulin. Um, so that becomes even more confounding factor in those individuals. Watch for bacterial co-infection. Uh, malaria a lot of times will also result in a, in a bacterial infection. Um, Due to, you know, either the bite itself could become infected, but more likely it's when the individual's immune response system is, is fighting off malaria that now it really lets the other bacteria come in and take advantage of, those of that depleted uh, immune system. Treat dehydration, whether that's with oral fluids, IV fluids, whatever you have available, whatever the patient's able to tolerate. Um, it doesn't seem to matter as long as you get fluid into them. Um, and then the last two would be in extreme circumstances, very severe disease, when you need to actually give somebody ventilations, um, give them inotropic therapy. Dopamine is the preferred agent to use if you have that available over um, epinephrine or adrenaline uh, because epinephrine and adrenaline, again, can increase the risk of acidosis, which these individuals may already be uh, at or at increased risk of just by having malaria itself. So malaria treatment itself has not changed a whole lot, uh, really, until these artemisin and uh, containing therapies became available in the late 80s, early 90s, even more so the mid-90s. Um, up until that point in time, everything had revolved around quinine, either or derivatives of quinine, like chloroquine, um, 
hydroxychloroquine even to some extent, mefloquine as well, and then, of course, quinine itself. Um, chloroquine, does anyone know when chloroquine first was developed? It's actually a, a, during World War II in the 40s. It was the Germans. Um, and then at some point in time, uh, U.S. soldiers, I guess I don't even know for sure if it was U.S. soldiers, Allied soldiers, um, ran into this research facility and found out that they were working on malaria treatment because, of course, there was a big push uh, of the Germans into South America and even uh, more, more so in Africa. So malaria was definitely affecting them as well. So they were the ones that actually developed chloroquine. So it's been around for a long period of time, 1940s, um, and that's why we see an increasing risk of resistance with chloroquine um, and many of the quinine-like components. So these came around, uh, the artemisin and base combination therapies came around, uh, again, in the, in the late 80s, early to mid-90s is when they really started to take on effect. We didn't really understand how to best use them. At first, when they first came out, they didn't really increase or, or decrease the symptoms of malaria a whole lot. They were effective in 50 to 75% of patients. Uh, which, you know, we'd really rather see at 75 to 100% of patients. Um, then we finally figured out that, oh, if we put them in combination with, one, with an artemisin and derivative, whichever one, with another anti-malaria, even the old ones like chloroquine, mefloquine, et cetera, that all of a sudden we saw close to 100% uh, relief in many of these patients. Um, and, and the way that works is it reduces the spread of resistance. So it doesn't allow the protozoa to just kind of get used to or just fight off any one of those individual compounds by itself. Now, if, if compound A, the, maybe a, um, the chloroquine, is, maybe it's kind of developing resistance in that area, um, that allows the artemisinin-containing comp component to come in and really allow it. It's the same idea as what we see with HIV-AIDS, with tuberculosis. You know, no one really that I know of anymore is going to just be treated if they have AIDS with just one medication. They take two, three, four, some cases. Um, so, again, uh, no resistance to, oops, to the artemisinin-containing medications, um, but, of course, with the partner drugs that we'll see a little bit, there is quite a bit of resistance in some areas of the world. Um, combination therapies, it used to be recommended that we could combine maybe a, a, a chloroquine with another non-quinine-based component that wasn't artemisinin. Now, with the most recent update, the World Health Organization no longer recommends that. So any combination therapy to treat malaria should always have an artemisinin component to it. Um, currently recommended, uh, there's, there's four that we know work. Um, there's many others that are in development. This artemether plus lumefantrine uh, is a brand-name drug in most of the world, um, meaning that it's available in, in just one pill. So it's a combination tablet that's available in one pill. Um, the artesunate mefloquine, it's two individual tablets. Artesunate sulfadoxine pyrimethine, which is another very old medication that we have available. Um, artesunate plus amodiaquine. And then there's many others that are currently being developed in, in a lot of the world itself. So let's look first at artemether plus lumefantrine. Um, again, indication uncomplicated, falciparum, uh, malaria. This, this one definitely it works very well for much of the world where we see resistance. 
uh, due to other components. Because if you look, lumefantrine is not a drug we really use by itself for malaria treatment, so there's not a large component of the world that has resistance to lumefantrine. Um, I forgot to mention with the artemisinin-containing compounds, there's no known resistance to any of those in any parts of the world. Not to say it won't develop at some point in time, but, but currently there's not been any large published information that there is any resistance to any of the artemisinin. So artemether, um, there's no, resist, no known resistance to. Lumefantrine, very, very anecdotal, small cases of resistance. So most of the world, it works very, very well. Um, the doses are listed there. If, if anyone, you know, don't feel like you have to jot all these down really fast, they're all available on the website or send me an email, and I will be happy to share this presentation with you <clears throat> that you can get the doses. The big important thing with, with this class or with this particular group of meds is, is that you take it with milk or fat-containing food. Uh, that helps increase the absorption um, of this particular compound. Without that, uh, if you take it on an empty stomach or don't have a high-fat meal, um, you're not going to get the full benefit of this compound of this compound of medication. Um, side effects, uh, for most people, it's the same sort of things that they have by malaria anyways. Um, so most people don't notice an increased risk of side effects with this medication. Uh, it kind of is, is very difficult to tease out whether or not the side effects are just a continuation of malaria that's being treated or whether the side effects are due to the drug itself. Contraindications with most of these drugs, we're going to see a risk of QT prolongation, which in a lot of the world, you know, I, we don't really know for sure. If patient A walks in, there's no known EKG strip on that individual, no fan QT prolongation. The risk of this is very, very small. So most of the world, um, you can give this, unlike quinidine, for example, we'll talk about shortly, um, you don't want to give uh, without knowing what that person's rhythm looks like. <clears throat> Children, uh, just dose appropriately. Pregnancy, lactation is very wishy-washy as to whether or not this medication is safe. Um, everything suggests that it is probably safe. There just haven't been any good studies looking at that um, with this particular medication. So it, it kind of comes down to if there's nothing that we know is safe available and this is all you have, it's probably better for that mother and baby to go ahead and use this medication. Availability, this one is available in the U.S. and worldwide. Artesunate plus mefloquine, this was kind of the first combination therapy that was looked at using an artenosinin-containing um, medication uh, with one of the traditional malaria meds. Uh, again, use it for uncomplicated falciparum. Doses available. Um, I forgot to mention on the other one, usually you're only looking at giving these drugs for three days. Um, so very short treatment duration. Um, they're all twice a day for three days, essentially. Um, this one is just once a day. So artesunate um, plus mefloquine, individual tablets, um, and there's the, the standard doses of, is available. Again, this is all available um, on the Medical Missions website should you wish to download it. Um, side effects, very similar to what we saw with the previous one. Um, we do know with this one, with regards to pregnant women, that it does cause some problems, at least in animals. We don't know for sure if that translates into humans as well. Lactation, we don't know. Um, artesunate availability. 
is not available in the United States. Mefloquine, if any of you know, many of you have probably taken mefloquine uh, when you're going overseas as a prophylactic medication. Mefloquine is widely available in the United States, but our testunate, um, you have to get directly from the CDC, and then it's only available in an IV formulation. We don't have an oral formulation available in the United States. Um, most of the world, though, usually has these, both of these medications available to them. Our testunate plus sulfadoxine pyrimethine, uh, again, uh, looking at uh, using a, a newer medication with this one is only used where the 28-day cure rates to just the SP component alone are greater than 80%, um, which most of the world is less than 80%. Um, there's some components of Africa where you can still use this, this combination, but vast majority of, of the world, this combination is not recommended to be used just because of the increasing resistance to SP. Uh, again, uh, three days uh, dosing on this medication, except for the SP component. The SP component you only get on day one. Um, so uh, the other two days, you're only taking the artesunate. Um, side effects, uh, again, pretty much the same. The, the big one that, that is different here is with that sulfadoxine. There are some anecdotal reports of a cross-sensitivity if patients have sulfa allergies, if you know that. Um, even if they have a true sulfa allergy, the chance of getting a sulfa reaction from this one is, is small still. Um, so you always want to use risk versus benefit as to whether or not this medication is going to be appropriate. Um, Pregnancy and lactation, we know this medication should not be used. Um, artesunate, again, available in most of the world, available from the CDC. Um, SP is no longer available in the United States. It used to be known under the brand name Fansidar. If any of you used to work in hospitals, you may have seen that. Um, no longer available in the United States. Um, I don't think you can even get that one from, uh, from the CDC. Artesunate plus amodiaquine is another combination drug, again, that we can use. It has that same warning, though. Um, amodiaquine, if amodiaquine monotherapy is less than 80% cure rate, then we can't use this medication. And again, the only place in the world really where you can see this is, is Western Africa. Places like Ghana, uh, for example, can use this compound still. Um, but again, amodiaquine resistance is increasing in the world, so it's likely that we won't use this compound um, anywhere in the not-too-distant future. Um, this one is uh, currently not available in one tablet, but it is undergoing development, and I've actually heard some areas of the world um, it is available in just one tablet, so they don't have to take two different tablets to make it a little bit easier on them. Um, Really, uh, there's not much difference uh, with this one. Uh, the only place you can find it is really in Western Africa. You can't get it in the United States under any circumstances. Um, so a little bit of review over that part of the, of the talk. Which of the following recommendations should be made for someone who is receiving artemether plus lumefantrine, A or B? A. Right, A, take with milk or fat-containing food. Um, if you take it on an empty stomach... It's still going to be absorbed. It's still going to work, but at a much lower rate um, than if you have a high-fat-containing meal in your, in your GI tract. Which of the following statements is correct regarding artemisinin-based compounds for treatment of malaria? Is A, lots of resistance worldwide true? No, there's no known resistance to those. Um, lots of resistance in the U.S.? No, doesn't really matter. Um, 
C should only be used if a patient cannot tolerate mefloquine. No, right. Um, or D, generally more effective if given with another, with another anti-malaria. Since we've ruled out the first three, we're going to go with that one is the correct one. Um, generally more effective if given with an, another anti-malaria. Again, remember, artemisinin-containing compounds, when they first came out, as the, the malaria-treating part of the world wasn't real excited about it because they didn't show real good efficacy. But when you combine them with another drug, even if it's mefloquine, uh, then all of a sudden we see a, a dramatic increase in the amount of patients who are going to get benefit from this. All right, if an area in Western Africa has a known amodiaquin monotherapy cure rate of 60% for malaria, then which of the following statements is correct? Is it going to work or is it not? Should we use it or should we not, essentially? No, if it's only 60%, which sounds pretty good, right? You know, well, it's more than half the time. And when we look at the vaccines here in a little bit, you'll see, well, 60%, you know, Kind of good compared to the vaccines. Um, but amodiaquin plus artesunate uh, is not a good choice of medications to use if the amodiaquin cure rate is only 60% by itself. Does that make sense? All right. So a lot of that has, you, you really need to be in tune with the area in the world in which you're practicing and what the cure rate to different medications are in those areas. All right, let's move on then to what happens if the first drug didn't work, if the first treatment regimen we gave them failed. Um, so cases where we have a failure less than 14 days after the initial treatment, we can just go ahead and give them, if we gave them, you know, the amodiaquine or the, the mefloquine-containing artemisinin uh, compound, switch to one of the others. Or we can give artesunate by itself plus either tetracycline, doxycycline, or clindamycin. Um, any of those antibiotics with artesunate are also good alternatives to use. Another one we could do is use quinine. What's the problem with quinine? Arrhythmias is a problem. Hypoglycemia is definitely a problem. And what about just swallowing it? Do patients, what's it do to your GI tract? It, it, it causes a lot of nausea, um, causes a lot of problems, so... Quinine is poorly tolerated, and, and because it is poorly tolerated, patients are not likely to take multiple doses of it, which leads to poor adherence. Um, so quinine is, is still a good drug to use. We just don't use it as much anymore because there are better tolerated medications out there. Um, but quinine, then you still add in one of those three antibiotics. Doxy, tetracycline should not be used during pregnancy or in pediatric patients less than eight. Why is that? Teeth, right, it stains their teeth, um, which in a life-threatening situation, is it better to be alive or have stained teeth? Um, you know, I, I think we would all agree that it's probably better to still be alive than to have some gray stained teeth. Um, treatment of severe malaria. Anytime you suspect severe malaria, even if you don't have laboratory, you know, there's no blood smear results back, no anything back, or you don't have access to blood smear to begin with, we need to start it immediately. Um, even if you're not sure if it's malaria or something else, until you know otherwise, and it, you think there's any chance of it being a severe case of malaria, it needs to start immediately, and then continue until that patient is well enough to take an oral treatment. So in other words, we're talking IV medications for the most part. Uh, because many of these people who would show up to your clinics or to your hospitals are not going to be in a case where they can swallow oral medications. Um, 
so treatment of severe malaria, we can give our test unate, um, IV medication or IM. There's even suppositories in, in some parts of the world containing our test unate. Has anyone seen the artesunate suppositories? I've actually never seen that. So one, uh, where was that at? Cameroon. Um, so there are suppositories in, in some parts of the world, and those it doesn't seem to matter in the long term of that patient if they get an IV, IM, or suppository. Um, 35% relative reduction mortality as compared to, to quinine, so it does a pretty good job. Quinine by itself, uh, again, be very, very cautious with this medication. We talked uh, about the hypoglycemia, that it causes an insulin release, uh, so we have to we'll really watch out for that, especially in pregnancy. Uh, World Health Organization does still recommend it. You do have to watch out for the arrhythmias. And then definitely, if you have a patient who is sick enough that their kidneys aren't working properly, quinine is going to make them even worse. Artemether, another artemisinin-containing compound. Um, the problem with this one, this one also is, is available in a suppository in some parts of the world, uh, is that you get erratic absorption, whether you're giving it by IM or whether you're giving it by suppository in these individuals. You get very erratic absorption. Um, so we try not to use this one just because we never know for sure what we're going to get in the end. Uh, quinidine. Uh, yeah, usually we don't want to use this medication. Usually we can't in much of the world use this medication um, because of this cardiac monitoring that we really need to watch. It's more prone to cause arrhythmias than quinine is, um, so you really have to watch it. Um, Again, really the only point that the World Health Organization recommends that you use quinidine by itself is in the case where there's nothing else available. All you've got on your shelves, all you have in the pharmacy is quinidine. Um, that's probably going to be better than nothing, but other than that, we really shouldn't use it. So what about malaria? Um, what can we give to a patient who is pregnant and has a severe case of malaria? Um, our testunate works quite well. Artemether is kind of the second choice. Um, depending on you know, what you're looking at, it doesn't seem to matter a whole lot uh, with regards to which one is going to work best during the, the first trimester. But in the second and third trimester, our test unit does seem to work a little bit better. Um, quinine is still another opportunity for you to use. We do know it because it's been used for so many years that it is safe. It doesn't cause any uh, teratogenic uh, properties. Uh, it is very safe for the patient to use other than this hypoglycemia. Again, it causes that insulin release, and you get severe hypoglycemia in some cases. So follow-on treatment for these individuals. Once they're well enough to take oral medications, we can stop, whether we're given an IV, an IM, or a, or a suppository form, and switch them to the oral um, equivalent of those medications. Um, you always want to do it with the, for seven days, and then seven days of doxycycline. You could use tetracycline as well, um, or clindamycin if you're dealing with a pregnant woman or a pediatric patient where you're worried about the doxycycline or tetracycline problems. Alternatively, you could give a full course of one of those four um, artemisinin-containing therapies, the, the compounded therapies with the, the artemisinin-containing medication and the older mefloquins or um, SP or the other agents. So you could do that for just three days as well. So treatment of malaria in the United States. How do we treat malaria in the United States? <clears throat> Anyone know? You bring coartem with you from Africa. 
being being coerced with. And I've been on trips, and I won't say who, where, whatever, in case there's somebody here from customs, um, uh, that that they do that um, because a lot of times that's the easiest thing to do. Um, we have drugs available in the United States. Uh, they'll use mefloquine by itself to treat malaria, um, maybe even chloroquine by itself to treat malaria. Not at all what we would really recommend to be done in, in most of the world, but the, the thought is here in the United States, theoretically, uh, we have better access to medicine that if somebody does go south, that we have other things we can do to prop them back up until we get the malaria itself under control. Um, other things that, that you can do is contact the CDC because really the CDC is the only place you can get the artemisinin containing therapies. Um, and so there's a special, if you go to their website and type in malaria, that you get a, a, a phone number to call and they will overnight that medication to your hospital or to the, the clinic, whatever you're working at here in the United States. Um, other than that, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's, it's very different than how we would treat malaria in, in most of the world. It's 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 truly the government and, and well the government is 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 probably part of it with the FDA. Um, maybe the other part of it though is you know when you're only dealing with 25 to 100 cases of malaria in the United States, there's no money in it for the drug manufacturers to try to get the FDA to approve it. Um, so it, it probably comes back more so to that money component. You know, if if a company knows they're only going to sell 25 doses of that medication a year. It's not worth it to go through all the the the, process, the legal processes to get a, a drug approved by the FDA. Um, Malarone is available in the United States. Sure, Yo, definitely. You can do Malarone. Um, is definitely available. You can definitely use Malarone. That's not a problem at all. Um, the artemisinin problem. You know, the question back there. They, they can still hide in, whoa, all of a sudden the speaker over here is working. Um, they can still hide in the liver. Those don't kill it in the liver. Sometimes those parasites will, will always be there. Um, there's not, you can in some cases get rid of it completely, but a lot of times, you know, my, my grandfather, for example, served in the, the Pacific Theater during World War II. I remember him, you know, and this would have been, he'd been well into his 60s, 70s, 40, 50 years after, and he'd have days. Now, whether or not it was malaria, I don't know. That's what he would blame it on, you know, was, was getting malaria on the islands. 
Um, so um, we're, we're working, I think, we're, we're closer to being able to completely get it. In most cases, it does completely get it rid of it, um, unless you have a very severe infection. Um, those cases is when it's more likely to hide out in the liver. Yeah, I'm a, a pediatrician, and I had a case a while back where um, an immigrant came to came to our town, and I saw him for his initial physical, and he was running fevers. He came from a endemic area. Would it be appropriate to just automatically assume that that's malaria? I mean, we see a kid with fever in our clinic. We don't think malaria. Right. You know, we think virus or something that's Sounds like you're saying in those other countries, you would assume it's malaria. Well, it's endemic there. Yeah, I mean, if, if you, yeah, it depends on, on the case. And here, you wouldn't probably want to just assume it, even if you're dealing with that, because, you know, maybe it's, it's cholera, maybe it's typhoid, maybe it's yellow fever. You know, there's a whole round, dengue fever, there's a whole realm of other things. So it's um, it probably would be best. And the, the CDC is unlikely, from my understanding, to send you medications unless you have a, a positive blood smear um, that was done that shows that it was malaria. There's the, the question has to deal with what can we do to maybe prevent getting bitten by a mosquito in the first place. And yes, there's there's the electric coils. There's all kinds of different things you can Why do. Why are they not available everywhere? I have no idea. Well, that's true. The electricity component would be a big problem. Pardon me. I don't know why, you know, if it's, if it just comes down to, a, you know, one of the, the off little fan things that, sure, yeah, uh, DEET, uh, DEET, it can be definitely your best friend um, in many cases, however you get, however you're getting that DEET, um, whether it's through, yeah, right, all right, vaccines real quickly to wrap up here. How long have we been looking at vaccines? Anyone know how long malaria vaccines have been tested? Decades, 20, 30 years um, or longer. How many vaccines are commercially available in any part of the world? None. Other than apparently there's some, I read something online a couple or a week or so ago, but Vietnam might have something um, that you can just get. I don't know anything more about it than that. Um, but, but currently, there's no widely commercial vaccine available. Development is very difficult. Um, the, the protozoa species um, in general, it, and there's so many different ones, it's very difficult to develop a vaccine. Um, the one everyone's excited about is this RTSS AS01. Um, it's currently in Phase 3 trials. Uh, there was some preliminary Phase 3 data released. Um, was that last October, I believe? They're expecting to release some more preliminary data in December of this year. Um, basically, a 51%, um, actually 51%, number here in the slide is not correct, 51% was in the Phase 2 trials. Uh, the Phase 3 trials showed 55%. So somewhere in that 51, 55% is where we think this vaccine is going to be at. Um, now, when you look at it, that was only in infants 5 to 17 months. They were given this vaccine once a month for three months. Um, we don't know for sure exactly how long it's going to be effective for. 
uh, they're guessing every three to four years you're going to have to repeat that to at least some extent. Um, we don't know for sure where that's going to be at. Uh, the full report isn't expected to be released until 2014. Uh, and then the World Health Organization is expected to, to rule on it in, in 2015. And, and it's expected it's going to have a place in therapy um, or in prevention, I guess, not so much in therapy. Um, but how much that is really going to be with only about a 50% response rate really remains to be seen. There's at least 20 others um, that are currently being researched. Some say there's more than 30 others that are currently being researched. All of them are about five to ten years behind where RTSS is. Um, so they think, they're actually they're, they're pretty sure, they being the malaria virology vaccine sorts of, of people experts, um, that we will eventually be able to develop a vaccine that works like the hepatitis A, hepatitis B, where we're talking 90-plus percent effectiveness. Um, we're not there yet with this RTSS, but they really think that in the not too, well, it will still be distant, um, but in the not-too-distant future from an overall malaria perspective, um, 15 years or so that we will be at that point, hopefully. Um, so they really think one of these other medications, one of these other vaccines that's coming down the pipeline will work much better than this RTSS. So, um, so we have that. Um, it's out there. It's available. Um, there are, they think it will be available in a couple years. Um, again, just keep in mind, only a little more than 50% response rate overall, though, is what's expected. Questions? Uh, two quick questions. One is, there's a report in summer that some folks in South Africa had to develop a one-time single-dose treatment for malaria, and I wanted to know if you knew anything about that. Secondly, about counterfeit drugs. Oh, counterfeit. I want to do that first. Actually, I'm not sure about the one-dose treatment <laughs> it came out this summer, right? in South Africa. No. Um, I, I, I'm not familiar with that one. Um, I, I do actually now you sent. I do remember seeing a report about it, um, but I don't remember. I think it was an artemisinin-containing drug that they worked. They were able to make it. The problem with the artemisinin drugs I didn't mention is that they have a very short half-life, and they were able to uh, medicinal chemists were able to go in and make it have a longer half-life so that now that one dose lasts for about those three days that we typically see. And so I think, I don't remember that for sure, but I'm, I think that's the way. Counterfeit drugs. Um, 2005, there was a New England Journal of Medicine article that talked about that. And uh, the, the chance of many drugs in a lot of the world um, that are quote-unquote for malaria actually having the amounts of the drug in them or actually even having any um, of the drug in them. Uh, somewhere around, depending on where you're at in the world, 25 to 30% of those medications were not going to be effective at all um, for treatment of malaria. Um, so, yes, that's definitely a problem. Um, you know, that, that's one thing we can say about the FDA here is they are very good about making sure those drugs um, have what they say in them. Um, but in a lot of the world, we, we don't have that check and balance. So, so yeah. There's, there's no, I, I don't. Does anyone have any tricks how to make sure that? Use coartum on everybody. Use coartum on everybody? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and the other thing is, is, is whatever your supply source in, in the area, there, like in, in Eastern Africa, there's an organization that many mission hospitals order their medications from that. So know your supplier. And they test and make sure, sure. That, that the compounds that they have in their stock, and so people ordering from that organization 
Sure. Um, the reason for the, 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 the idea of using that coartum in everybody is because that's the one that's that brand name medication. So um, now there's still been, been cases of, even with coartum, um, very few, but there's still been cases of counterfeit, you know, where the packaging looks like it should look, the pills look like they look almost like they should look. Um, so there are still even then. So a lot of it comes down to, you know, uh, knowing who you're getting your medications from, um, having that good relationship. Yes, sir. Prophylactic medications, what do you use and why? Um, it, it really comes down to, one, where you're going. Um, so, for example, personally myself, when I go to, when I've been to Haiti or Belize or Honduras, I would do chloroquine um, just because it was cheaper. Um, was, was really the only reason why I did chloroquine, and it, it shows effectiveness in those areas. When I've gone to Africa, I do mefloquine. Um, my wife doesn't like mefloquine um, because she gets very bad nightmares with it. Um, anyone ever had those nightmares with mefloquine? So it, it is definitely out there. Um, um, so she does doxycycline every day um, for that period of time. What's that? Yeah, right. It, it, depending where you're going, right. You still always have to go back to that one. Know where you're going um, to, to know for sure what's working on. Uh, CDC actually has a very good website that will tell you um, where to go or, or based on the country you're going, which medications they recommend. Um, so uh, what I always tell patients who, who come and ask me or, or people who know I've been on, on trips, um, just print that, go to that website for the CDC, go to that country and print it out and take it to your physician. Because most of the time the physicians here in the United States, um, and, and the other thing that I do as a pharmacist when I still work in community pharmacy, which is, is very rarely, um, but I will still see people bring in a prescription for chloroquine. And, again, chloroquine is not going to work in a large part of the world, so I always, where are you going? And I've had to make two phone calls in the last five years, and I probably only dispensed chloroquine. Like Again, I've worked very, very not much at all. Um, I've made two phone calls to physicians. They say, hey, chloroquine is not the right drug for this person because they're going to Africa. Um, think about this. So, yes. problem with, with a lot of these medications, and we can go back and look at hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine has been used for a long time in the United States, or was used for a long time in the United States, for rheumatoid arthritis patients. So we'd use it all day, every day, for years and years and years. And it does develop toxicity, specifically at deposits in the eyes. Um, and and the, a lot of the quinine-containing medications can do that as well. So, so exactly like, like the, the lady sitting next to you, a lot of long-termers will just treat it when they get it. Um, because those medications, you know, taking mefloquine um, all or you know once a week for years um, is potentially more hazardous. We we really don't know that I know of. There's not been any long-term studies looked at any of these traditionally prophylactic medications um, for a period of, of months to years. Um, yeah, there's yes, sir. Some kind of 
Sure. Well, with, with doxycycline, the question was, with, if you take doxycycline for a long period of time, will you develop resistance to other medications? Yeah, potentially anything else in that class, like tetracycline, is going to lose effectiveness as well, um, doxycycline. And that's if, if you're just trying to take it for, you know, a, a bacterial infection of whatever sort. It may or may not work as well, depending on their – and that's why we see in, in some areas of the world that there is a large part of resistance to many common antibiotics – because, one, you don't need a prescription. You just walk in and get it, and, and the individuals living in those areas of the world know that, so we get resistance then when we go to, in and try to treat a pneumonia or something. Um, and it, yes? I was just going to make a comment that although a lot of these drugs are not available in the U.S., like Blessings International, sure. and I think maybe Kingsway, a couple other places, have imports for export, and you can get them to take with you. Right. But you have to sign a thing that says you won't use them in the United States. So they don't help you if you get malaria here, but they help you if you get malaria. Theoretically. Yes, sir. Is there malaria immune globulin? Is there malaria immune globulin? I don't know. Can you give immune globulin and protect people while they're getting their stable immunity built up? I've, I've never heard of Has anyone ever heard of that? I've never run across that in any of my reading because you can do that with other things, yeah. you know, while you're so getting immunity brought, rocked up. My, my guess is with the protozoa um, that the immune globulins are not going to work quite as effectively um, as what we see with, like, with hepatitis vaccines, for example. Um, you know, virus versus protozoa. My guess is that the immune globulins are not going to work quite as well for that reason. Sure. Had developed a resistance to the protozoa, and because we're not collecting immune globulin in Africa and other places, the immune globulin is coming largely from the U.S. Right. So the initial question, if you guys couldn't hear, was could you give immune globulin for malaria? prevention and or treatment um, in the, while they're building up immunity. Um, and the very good response was, was that it, it, it depends. If you were collecting immune globulin from an individual who already had built up immunity, then yes, theoretically it will work. Um, but otherwise, probably not um, because of the protozoal nature. The CDC and the World Health Organization um, really have quite a lot of, of information available. Um, so if, if you go to who.int um, and search for malaria, you'll come up with a whole big slew of, med of, of very good and very useful information. And then they've got links even with, from within the World Health Organization's website to other areas. Same with the CDC. Um, Textbook-wise, uh, I really like Manson's Tropical Diseases. It's what we use in, in our in our uh, class. Um, so so textbook-wise, Manson's Tropical, it's it's very thick. Um, so if you like big, thick textbooks, it's for you. If you don't like big, thick textbooks, this, this handbook is a very easy novel-sized sort of book. Um, and it's also very good. Manson's, for example, has 100 pages devoted just to malaria. Um, and then the Oxford Handbook has about 10, so... I think at this point we're going to go ahead and, and a little bit over. If you have additional questions, um, please come up and see me, uh, or I can be out in the hall here shortly as well. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. Hopefully it was worthwhile for you. And again, the slides are available on the website, the, the Medical Missions website. If you can't get them, um, send me an email, um, mosler, M-O-S-L-E-R, at finley.edu, and I'd be happy to send those on to you.